Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, so this is episode 35 of Developers Eating the World. I am joined by David, who I recently kind of tracked down from doing a session on Desert Island DevOps. That's what it was called, right? Yeah, de Deserted Island Deserted DevOps. Island, yeah. <laughs> Deserted Island DevOps. David, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was an educator for seven years, a special education, and then I made a career shift over to software engineering. In, within that career, I have ended up in the DevOps space. and I've been doing that for about three years, specifically in DevOps. I work for a company called GoSpotCheck. We're sort of a mid-sized startup. We offer field execution software for uh, companies that have field teams to better do business analytics. And I'm excited to be here and talking about stuff. I have a lot of questions about that. So is that like edge, edge computing stuff, IOT or? No, I'm, I'm talking about very literal, like a common use case would be that you are Pepsi and you have an agreement with Walgreens where, you know, they will get preferential pricing if your stuff is in stock and at eye level. And traditionally you'd have people go out with a clipboard and Mark, oh, yep, right. I went to this Walgreens and it was in stock and, yeah. and at eye level. And now admins, uh, sort of the central office, can set up missions for field teams to execute. Um, we are adding, you know, higher value adds around the stuff like machine vision, where instead of having to hand mark or, you know, or in some way, you know, to describe uh, a refrigerator at a Walgreens, you can take a picture of the, the cold box and we will tell you you know, yep, these products are here, they're in this place, you have this much percentage controlled uh, or owned of the the facing um, and some other really cool wow. stuff that we're, we're, we're rolling out this year. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting space that I did not know existed, you know, until I started working for this company. And but it's it's kind of a cool, cool thing and, a, and an interesting problem space to be in. I, uh, I like it, I could see some interesting AR applications as well. I really like when traditional businesses end up doing cool stuff with tech, you know, versus yeah. with the tech companies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's, and we're in that space where we're, we're providing that tech product to these sort of traditional businesses and, and getting deeply integrated into their processes and, and then, you know, learning how to make our product better opposed to maybe being at a company or in a product that is more purely technology driven. Right. You know, this company was really, is really strongly driven by real business problems. Right. And so whether you are one of our, you know, implementation specialists working directly with customers or like me down in the, the meat of our infrastructure at any given time, we're focused on making sure that other people can solve immediate problems that they have. And that's. That's yeah. a good feeling, you know. Yeah, it's cool. And and I like that we're finally there in the DevOps world where we're we're not just unicorning it up. Um and, and I think getting real is what we're gonna talk about in a second regarding your session. Deserted Island DevOps was a virtual yeah. event. I think yep. in the last four weeks I've been to a total of twelve virtual events. They're blending together, but this one certainly could not be blended together because <laughs> it was no. extremely unique. What was the format of it? So there, Austin, who who 
it was his brainchild, posted, I think, uh, a breakdown of the technology he used. So I'll send you that link to put in the show yeah, notes. That would be great. It, it was really impressive. At one point, he posted a screenshot of his desktop uh, in one of the Discord channels um, when someone was saying, how are you doing this? But basically, as we as the presenters were on Zoom, and we were in a Zoom meeting that lasted all day. And I think that just to start there, like that was one of the real differentiators. And, and we were kind of talking about that in the background between some of the talks is that a lot of the virtual events you have, even if you do it live, you're not really interacting with right. a lot of people. And, and I think that there was something to us being there together all day, reinforcing each other, talking about things. Got an energy um, level going. Yeah, it felt more like being at a real conference rather than being at a webinar. Yeah. So we we were uh, we were kind of reflecting on that the whole, as it as it went, and I think that even got called out. Like a whole bunch of venues featured it that day. I think PC Mag even yes. called because they had one that came out later in the day. They even said like you can tell behind the scenes that these people are at ease and kind of friendly with each other. And you know I was I think a lot of those people knew each other from previous speaking things, and I I had seen some of these people at previous speaking things, but I did not know any of them. You know, and so but it was it was a very easy energy. Yeah, because um, it's hard. It matters in these virtual events that the human comes across. Well, and even, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges today is that even we have weekly all hands because we're still pretty small. We're about 100 people. And so our CEO, you know, leads this weekly meeting. And traditionally, up till now, we'd been a very, you're all in the office kind of company. And the first couple of weeks, uh, Matt, our CEO, would say something in all hands and go, man, I, I can't deal with having no feedback. You know, you know, like we, we kind of joked, like maybe, maybe our head of HR who kind of is the, the coordinator on the all hands, like should get a soundboard of, you know, applause and clapping and <laughs> on and stuff to, to run. Cause it's so weird talking and having no reaction. So, so I think that helped. Like you, even if you couldn't hear all the people in the Twitch stream laughing or clapping or whatever, you had, you know, six, seven other people in the zoom stream that were reacting in some way. That was the other visual element of this. So it's running on, you guys are on Zoom. You have yeah. a live Twitch session. Yeah. And then you have Discord. Well, there was conversations going on all over the place, but you had Discord for yeah. conversation. And you were playing and you were on stage yes. with Animal Crossing. <laughs> so Austin, Austin had a stream from his Switch into his PC through a video capture card. And then I don't know, I'm sure that this is broken down in that breakdown post, but so I can know, I know the result here, not the specific tools he used, but basically then he was able to selectively route video and audio from the Zoom meeting into that and overlay it, like overlay the video into that stream. And then I don't know how he selectively routed the audio, but basically we, there were times when Katie, who was the MC, would be talking and Austin would pop, pop in and go, keep covering, I'm still cropping the video or keep, keep going and keep filling. And, but his, you couldn't hear him in the Twitch stream. So he was taking Katie's audio from the oh Zoom somehow and, so and selectively work. piping that through. Oh, he was so tired at the end of the day. He was visibly I like I was tired. So that, that's the only thing I'll say about that conference is I was exhausted yeah. just at like the number of inputs and variables. And I'm trying to, trying to work at the same time. And Cause yeah, so, then there was conversation happening in Twitch. There was conversation happening in several different Discord channels in that Discord. And then, yeah, as the presenter, you're having to, we, we talked about this a lot as we kind of went through the day during the breaks, is like most of us had more plans to do in-game reactions and walking around or doing other stuff, but to 
you had to track your slides. We were kind of, you know, some of us, I think, were kind of watching the Discord or the Twitch uh, stream. And then you're also kind of having to think about, like, where am I at with talking? Where am I at with slides? What was I planning on doing here? I don't have my presenter notes because I got because it's through Zoom. And so Austin, you know, can't have the presenter notes. And I think I had more reactions than several other people, but the result was I had several multi-second pauses as I went like, oh, I should do a reaction. Which reaction? Where is that? <laughs> okay, it yeah, there it is. Okay, cool. Yeah, and then there was a delay between what we saw and what was happening on Twitch. So then you'd kind of like check Twitch to see that it came across okay, but then it's... Oh, it did, you know, like... Well, anyways, it, it was cool. It gave me a complex only because I just felt like I wasn't one of the cool kids. But by the end of it, I'm like... I don't play Animal Crossing. You know, I've been on Twitch kind of, sort of. Uh, you know, none of those things. I'm like, and I speak at trade shows all the time. I'm like, man, I don't know how I would ever compete. With I, um, you know, it's funny because like I, I have a Twitch login because you had to have one to play Dungeons & Dragons on D&D Beyond when they launched that site. I had never watched Twitch until that day. And I had never gotten onto a Discord server until that day. Um, so I definitely feel that a little bit, like I even kind of called that out. Like I, f I feel like an old man right now because the only thing I have is that's, Animal Crossing. Yeah, and I primarily bought that for my son before then getting hooked into it myself. I liked your session because it a big part of it was about tool adoption, the actual title. If you can wait six months, you, you should. Being techies, um, even though a lot of, we don't have a lot of time, we do have this kind of shiny object I want to go check it out. I mean, even I do, when it comes to implementing this stuff, I'm not that great, but I will always kind of go and chase little tiny new cool things. Can you describe that problem of like just chasing tools and what that means? And Yeah. And I think, especially something that I didn't, I think maybe I kind of meant to get into the context of the talk and, and forgot to was, so there's the whole, you know, you're not Google and you ain't gonna need it. And, and all these sort of, you know, things that people, that I think are very closely related to this because, you know, if you go on Hacker News or you're reading blog posts in this space, there's always like these people from these companies that A, have problems that are much bigger than yours and B, have teams to deal with those problems who are constantly coming out with incredibly, incredible new right. stuff and describing it in awesome terms. And, and so there's that, you know, again, as someone working at a smaller company on a very small team, um, we have very limited time to execute anything. And so, but, but it's hard to resist the, the clarion call of cool stuff, especially because I think it's easy to get roped into a hype machine of, of that stuff. You know, um, the, the hot thing I feel like right now is testing in production and deploying 85 times a day, and each deploy is seven lines of code that minutely changes something, and you go through multiple canary phases to make sure it's good, and you know, and that's all really amazing, and like, uh, we probably don't, we don't have to be doing that right now. Doing right. that requires a ton of tooling that's hard to set up, and process changes, and you know, I, I literally finished writing a blog post last night, how do you support continuous delivery? because I had a conversation with this, a guy on our tier two support team a couple of months ago. And he was like, yeah, that's great. But all the blogs about continuous delivery are from engineers perspective, what happens when we get 85 tickets because the canary was bad. And I was like, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have an answer. The whole flip side of that. And the point of the talk was 
a lot of the stuff that is that cool is very hard to set up right now. But if you wait six months, someone's going to make it easier. It's going to become a CLI command instead of like a whole system you have to set up because Masayoshi Son keeps doing this to, <laughs> into companies that can burn the money, you know, um, on, on teams to build it. So what do you think the cost, the actual cost, opportunity costs, like the impact of tool changes in your pipeline, in your delivery chain? Like in terms of negative impact? Unexpected work, context switching, you know, like all the things, um, yeah. bugs it might create with other tools because they don't play friendly. Sure. So I've been trying to upgrade to Kubernetes 1.15 on GKE for four months. Wow. It's May, six months. So, and we have just happened to hit three consecutive like upgrade pausing, not ending, but like long-term pausing, like fundamental bugs with GA features in GKE. Like we're on the stable channel and we do not use beta features. And we just keep hitting these weird long tail edge case things that prevent us from upgrading, which then throws a wrench because, you know, we use ambassador as our API gateway and the Helm chart for Ambassador, we, we, we've been using it since like 0.2 or 3 something, and they're post 1.0. And we were trying to go from 0.83 to 1.4. And their Helm chart in their horizontal pod autoscaler uses an API that we couldn't get until we updated to 1.15. And so there's all these like weird, you know, inter-thing dependencies that you don't think about until you go to do it. I was just saying this to one of my coworkers this morning because we were trying to do something else. And it was like, there's, there's parts of this job that are just incredibly magical and incredibly hard. And it's one or the other. Like either things just kind of work and you're like, I can't believe this all right. works this way. Or, you know, the most recent one was, um, uh, uh, we use Sumo Logic as our observability vendor and their Helm chart conveniently installs Falco for you, which is this like security anomaly log detector thing but it installs the extended Berkeley packet filter. And when we upgraded to 1.15, we happened to get a kernel upgrade from GKE that was incompatible with the packet filter and caused CPU soft locks. And that took like four hours on the phone with a like tier four Google support person to figure out. And so, you know, I mean, we're not, and that's not even adopting new tools. That's just trying to like upgrade to the latest stable version right. of the one we have. Right. So yeah, there's huge cost. I mean, I don't even know the number of hours I've dumped into this effort. Another, I think, strong example of this is we're trying to adopt open tracing. We're trying to ship our open traces to a vendor. At the same time, we're trying to use uh, adopt Linkerd as a service mesh. And I think I've probably spent 50 or 60 hours trying to get Ambassador, Linkerd, the tracing in our services, and then the two open telemetry collectors I have to deploy to accomplish all of that to like line up correctly and just ship traces down the line in a, in a lined up way where everything can display them. And it's like, you know, and they're, and they're like, that, those all feel like valid things for us to be doing right now. But the moment you get any kind of, and I don't even think that it's a problem that we're doing them both at the same time, because it would, I would have had the same problems just sequentially instead of in parallel when we, if we fully got tracing done and then fully got Linkerd done. What drives these initiatives? Like, how did you decide, oh, we need to embrace Linkerd. Oh, we need to go down the path, path of open telemetry, which I'm a big yeah. fan. Yeah, we just, we've reached a point where we have enough microservices that, and 
and we have enough developer desire to figure out why their microservices aren't working more effectively. I, you know, I, I this was the, the first through line in, in the talk, uh, but, you know, a couple of years ago, I was SSHing to VMs and executing into containers and curling the next service down to see if it could be reached or not, right? And, and I think another thing I missed kind of talking about the other day was like, when someone asked, you know, how do you decide what to adopt and, and what, what you should adopt early and what you should wait six months on or, or more is you can only roll out so many things at once to people because they have to have an underlying schema of information to understand why something is important and mind-blowing and game-changing. I only fully appreciate distributed tracing because I had to do what I, because I had to do the curling, right? And, and there's a little bit of like, what I try to do now as, as an ops person is have those, that tooling ready so that when people have that problem, there's a developer I work with very closely right now who's kind of on the vanguard of our stuff internally, who has distributed tracing set up. He has written um, like common libraries that can be pulled into all of our Go services that, that just kind of stand all this stuff up in a way that, that just kind of works out of the box with what we've done. And, and for him, you know, he was sitting willing to, to debug a request through multiple services. And I was like, let me show you uh, the picture that's at Jaeger's website of what distributed tracing looks like. And he was like, oh, I want that. That would be, that's exactly what I need. And I was like, I know, it's gonna take a couple of months of implementation, let's start now. <laughs> but I couldn't tell him about that until he'd had the pain, right? But so now what he and I are trying to do is we have several other teams coming onto this and it's like, okay, well, we're just gonna tell them some stuff they need to do so that in a couple months when they feel this pain, it. it doesn't have to be like, okay, cool. Well, now you have to go back and re, re, you know, add all the Jaeger code. It's like, remember that stuff we told you a couple months ago to just do? Well, here, you know, it turns out you have all the tools you need to, to debug this effectively and you didn't even know it. But I'm not even introducing the tool to you until you know you need it. Because otherwise it's just noise. Like that's, that's, that's been a huge lesson. So that's an interesting criteria that I haven't thought about. It also, while you were talking, it made me think that it feels like you have to have a baseline of your current delivery chain before you start adding something new and then something new and then something new because nobody gets proficient at that baseline if you, if you do that. Yeah, and, and I mean, if, we made, if we've made one mistake, we went from Heroku where you are given everything to GKE two years ago where you are given nothing. And, and so there's the thing of like, you know, your, your new technology budget should be one, right? Like if I'm building a new service, well, I know Rails, but I wanna put it in Docker, right? So I'm not gonna write in a new language in Docker on a new distribution platform. We probably should have started with like, run a Rails app on Heroku in Docker. But what we did was right. writing Go apps in Docker on Kubernetes. You know, um, and so like our, our new technology budget for this platform was like all of it. So what you have to do then is scale back and go like, yeah, metrics are going to be a little lacking for a while because we're just getting the apps running and then we'll get metrics and then we'll get tracing and then we'll get, you know, anything else. Yeah. And it feels like part of the job is making sure the tool isn't pulling you like you're dictating, you're dictating what it becomes and how it's adopted besides the weird stuff. Like you need to have control over the tool versus the tool controlling you. Yeah. And we're learning ops lessons from that. 
one of the things we're looking at maybe is um, there's this really, well, this is a really cool tool called Valero. And um, it, it basically backs up your clusters and can restore your clusters. Like it takes uh -huh. snapshots of every YAML object and then makes persistent volume uh, snapshots of all the uh -huh. persistent volume disks and stuff. And so what we're looking at doing now is, I mean, we have like straight up broken our dev and staging clusters for developers a couple of times now trying to do upgrades like this, is making like a upgrade test cluster, backing up the dev cluster, restoring it in so that we have like the environment and then trying to do an upgrade there and then doing it in dev yeah. and stage and prod. I can make a little cluster and upgrade it. It's going to go great because we're not running everything, you know? Right. Um, it's not going to take 12 hours because we have, uh, you know, pod disruption budgets and everything. So I'm glad you said that. I mean, parity seems to be in configuration drift seems to be a big kind of like unsolved problem for a lot of organizations. Yeah. And a lot of time on that. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you. Uh, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> yes, I agree. That point. No, I was just gonna say it's just it's just about like the, the other side is just educating people. Like people have to have time. There's a guy at work that, that I have described how Kubernetes works to him four times, and he it's like he got it every time. But then two weeks later, it was gone because he didn't have to do anything with it. Yeah. Right. And so that's the other piece of just waiting till someone's needs it or is ready is. Otherwise, you're just kind of wasting your time because it's that's true for me too. Like, I have learned how Rails works a bunch of times, but I don't ever actually work on our Rails app, so I couldn't tell you how Rails work. So you're you're describing a soft skill, and we know that you know in the business of DevOps or doing DevOps and even development today, the soft skills are are absolutely mandatory, which gets me to kind of an interest in your career path. So you went from a very kind of challenging um, educational field. Were you already in tech prior to that? I built my PC, I built a PC uh, last week and the prior time I had done that, I was 17. But I mean, like I grew up in a household where I used DOS, like I knew what the command line was. I built many, many bad GeoCities pages with spinning Star Wars images on them. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so I knew how HTML worked basically and um, you know, one time when I was a kid, my best friend and I accidentally deleted star.star on his dad's PC. And, um, right. and yeah, it was, it was, he had backups. So, uh, you know, I mean, like, I've always maybe been at, like, the prosumer level. Like, I can set up my own Wi-Fi and stuff. And I'm that arrogant person who calls into tech support. So like, yeah, I already re restarted it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, but I, so I had been in education. I, I got a master's degree in special education. Actually, wow. my bachelor's degree is in marketing. And then I graduated into the recession and didn't, and also kind of learned from getting a bachelor's degree in marketing, I didn't want to do it. So I got a master's degree in special ed. I worked as a special education teacher working with kids with really severe emotional and behavioral disabilities. Wow. And basically like I took a job that was the wrong job to take. I ended up unemployed in the middle of a school year, which is the worst time to be unemployed in an education. And my son had been born two months prior Wow. And I needed, and so I kind of just was like, well, what, what else might I want to do? Let me just take a minute here and, and rethink things. So I ended up doing a boot camp, uh, Galvanize. Yeah. And my, my initial entry point was when we started learning about tests and testing and test-driven development, I went, oh, well, this is just a behavior plan for software. I may not be the best developer anyone has, but I have half a PhD in this. And so that was my kind of handhold was, uh, the first thing I did was I was writing end-to-end -end tests for uh, an e-commerce platform, and then we 
kind of started writing a platform through which developers could submit defined test suites and request them to be run uh, against you know a given domain so they could stand up in test environments and run run to end testing against them and as part of that we had a cloud team of three in a very large company and they didn't even have a manager and they were like look we're just making vpcs you have to learn how to deploy your stuff and so i kind of volunteered to be the person to do that so that's how i got into devops but from the soft skill transfer point of view as a special education teacher i had the absolute privilege of working in a school that fully was committed to the concept of inclusion and inclusion is rooted in the idea that rather than like these are my kids and they push into a classroom when they have earned the right it sort of is this idea that like these are kids who have disabilities that they struggle with but they belong in a regular classroom and then i will i will push into the classroom to support them or maybe i might pull them out but in a very minimal way you know and so so then that whole model gets flipped on its head and now i'm not teaching kids all day i'm really like the majority of my job at the point is to help teachers like general education teachers teach these kids and transferring my skills to them and my knowledge to them and there's been sort of an overall trend in education over the last 20 years or so of like gen ed teachers now just regular classroom teachers they have to be reading specialists and math specialists and assessment specialists and English as a second language specialist and special ed specialists and, um, you know, and they have to like have a little bit of all of that. And so when I stepped into to development, I came in kind of on the tail end of, of this cultural movement of like, well, you're the developer. You should be testing your own software. You should know how to deploy your own right. software. Like, you should know how to build your own software and, and operate it and monitor it. And I was kind of like, oh, I know how to convince people to do my job. That's been my job. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and, and in a supported, you know, way, uh, not, you know, not literally just like, here's my job, right? But the, the skill transfer and knowledge transfer and building an environment through which that is not a burdensome ask, that, that's like the big soft skill I think I bring from my previous career. I think it's huge. It is interesting how there's this element of, sharing what you know, but also just stewardship. I think you understand the nature of people. Techies don't want people to be people. We want them all to be engineers and programmable and automatable, but it's there and it matters a lot. Yeah. And that's why I look like working in a small shop too, is because, yeah. you know, my customers are those guys right over there. Right. And the right. things that I build, I immediately reflect on them able to being able to do their jobs or not. Yeah. And um, you call them customers. So that's yeah. the thing is like the, the people who build the delivery chain are building it for the developers as customers. And you're kind of treating your delivery chain as a product. I mean, even how you described how you're rolling out functionality, it's like you how you would describe rolling out functionality to end users of a web application. I think that's the biggest missing component for a lot of people, not everyone, because I think one of my favorite talks at, at Pin, uh, KubeCon was by Pinterest. And, you know, they, they built like a, a sugar layer on top of Spinnaker, but they did it with a UI person. They did it with a product oh, wow. owner, right. you know, and they built up, they, they did personas and they did, you know, interviews and they built a product. And, um, and I don't have that kind of re those kinds of resources, but that's still what we're doing right now. Like this year we are trying to, you know, we have not built like a platform on top of Kubernetes. We have glued together a bunch of tools that we can get to get stuff out. And this year, the goal is to start building more of a cohesive platform 
uh, where developers can start with some sane defaults, dive in deeper if they need to and exploit the full power of it, but otherwise kind of like, you know, Heroku push my app, right? But internally, and we started with personas and we are, you know, yeah, treating it like, like a product to roll out because it is, you have, otherwise, otherwise what you end up with is you end up with a platform team that is building cool technologies. The people on that platform team are the people who are the most solidly technical. They might be building something that is extremely powerful and capable, but requires you to make in Vim. And it's okay if that thing was made with make and Vim, but most of our developers don't know how to use make and Vim. You know, and so, so you, whatever has to, is built has to still be built to the requirements of the other engineers at right. the level that they want to be engaging with the tool. Yeah. And the other aspect of this is long-term sustainability, because if you don't build with that mindset, then you go really fast for a short amount of time <laughs> until yeah. at some point scale or whatever forces you to make a change. And now you're, you're kind of lost because you never considered that that was going to happen. Yeah. And, and what we're doing now is we're trying to leverage the knowledge and ability of, of our really senior experienced developers who are also in a subcategory of wanting to get deep into config. Because we also have very senior experienced developers who just want to Heroku push their app because they just want to ship. And that's totally valid. But there are also people who love getting deep in the weeds. And so we're trying to like make it so that the people who want to get deep in the weeds can build common tooling that the people who just want to ship can use to just ship. But the deep in the weeds people aren't building something that's kind of just for themselves. And when they build it, it's building something that the people who just want to ship want to use. Because like we don't have a platform team. My team is not that team. We, we, I can't just go build the whole thing. Well, I could, and I've offered to, and I've told everyone that I would be a benevolent dictator, but that was turned down. <laughs> yeah, here's all the tools I would love to use. Go for it. But yeah, I mean, being in a constrained resource environment, especially now, we're trying to build a process that leverages everyone's expertise to make something that's nice to use. So that's great. All right. So I'm going to do the uh, three industry term game now. So I'm going to throw okay. three terms at you. Tell me, define it or impressions, whatever. I'm going to start with the first most controversial one, no ops. I'm going to say that that's the next generation of serverless. <laughs> or now you don't even have to worry about the code that you don't deploy to a server, even though it's deployed to a server. Um, yeah. or, or maybe we're talking about something like Hasura? where it's just like, here's a GUI over your GraphQL backend and you don't have to worry about what that means. I don't know. I don't know what NoOps is. So I think 90% of it is just, uh, it's provocative. In my opinion, as long as there's an operator somewhere, there's ops. So it's, yeah. I think that it came about with this whole shift left movement of where you just don't have an operations team as a part of development. Oh, sure. So as opposed to DevOps, you have no ops, which just means no ops team because your developers do it all. Okay, I'll buy yeah. that. But there's still ops happening. It's just now it's yeah, like there's only still an operator. The developer is the operator. Yeah. Let me tell you, after completely borking our entire VPC system already once in the two years I've worked for this company, I wouldn't advise that. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm theoretically a senior operations person and uh and i only have that title because i completely borked our vpc setup once yeah that's it maybe promotion should be ba based on failure and response to failure not they absolutely should 
if they're if they're not then i'm i have the wrong title because, <laughs> because i continue to fail on a daily basis and just respond to it really well <laughs> that's right uh next one is resilience engineering oh that's just making it so that if one part of your system goes down the rest of it doesn't go down with it and you can still stay up and have uptime and not have to make sla payouts do you feel like that is a separate function um, activity or is it is it a part of DevOps? Well, let's take a step back and define DevOps as a culture in which there's lots of communication around all the stuff that it takes to develop your software and operate it. So if operating your software means having it not go down, then I think that right. that's part of it. I'll, I'll have this colored by being at a small shop and having worked at a very large one where we had, you know, five, 600 people in engineering. It all depends on how many job descriptions you can hand out to how many people. And like, if you had, can huh. have a team that is the resilience engineering team or the SRE team, then it sounds like it's a separate function, you know, like it, but, but even then I'd say it's still in DevOps because you can have a whole separate team. That's just reliability engineering or you could have it so that on every team there's a reliability engineer and DevOps still means that they are talking regularly with the developer who's talking regularly with the QA person, you know, who's talking regularly with the ops person like that. I still say I'm a senior DevOps engineer because that's what people outside understand. But right. we changed our team name internally to cloud operations because the problem with us being named DevOps is that everyone kept looking at us and going like, yeah, so we write code and you write circle and Terraform and the network and security and you know like and anything that's not writing feature code and it wasn't done maliciously but like for a long time my joke when people ask me what do you do i was like everything but feature code right <laughs> and because we're the devops team right and so we specifically changed our name to cloud operations to imply like i build cloud infrastructure and help you learn how to use it and maybe like you know yeah. there's the i we operate the api and gateway and jaeger and prometheus etc right and you're not neglecting production which i think is is in some groups devops gets everything up to prod which yeah. is brilliant. yeah yeah because we're the op but, but it's like but it's like what part of that are we responsible for we're responsible for the operations part the infrastructure part the service the underlying service you know supportive services part and for passing on that knowledge and skills and again that's just the model that we have because of how we're staffed but you could do the same thing by having completely vertical teams where every team has an ops person or something. It comes, it comes back to this eternal struggle, like DevOps is a culture, right? And so like, yeah, I think resilience engineering is in there. Who does it and whose responsibility it is and whether it's a separate role or not just depends on how much money you have. All right, third, third and last term, feature flagging. Love feature flagging. I think that's- Me too. I think that is a, a, an, an underutilized and overlooked thing we're getting to a point internally where we're like, we want to start being able to do more rapid experiments. And, and I think people then think of it as like just the front end, you know, cause we had a very comprehensive feature flagging thing that you could use to show, you know, specific bits of front end UI to different customers by company and all this stuff. And then when I brought up feature flagging for the back end, everyone's like, yeah, well, that's kind of overblown. I'm like, no, no, no. You just need to be like, team A shipped their part, but team B has not. Is it on? You know? Right. Or even just what level of logging am I at right now? Because one of the most horrific things to have to do is like, everything's broken. We need debug logs. Run the entire deployment chain. 
you know, with a new environment variable. Uh, I don't know how successfully, but I'm trying to convince people right now, like your log level should be a feature flag. So you can just be like, things are broken in production, debug, rather than having to like push through an entire deployment. So yeah, I love feature flags. Yeah, and I think what you described, and I, I love them as well, I think it builds that continuity from every stage of the delivery chain. You're talking about using it even as the the delivery chain as a product, which is interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, I hadn't either. I don't remember what I read the other day where like that using it for log level is not an original idea of mine. I just can't credit it off the top of my head at this moment. But I was like, that's a great use of feature flags when I read it. It was bing. But yeah, I mean, even just from the perspective of running canaries and I could see that, you know, getting back to like, how do you support continuous deployment? Turning off canary is hard, but maybe if the canary version just has a feature flag on, then you could flip it off if it's breaking and, you know, in some cases get back to 100%. So before you know it, you're going to be writing some sort of design pattern for for all of this. And it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And then you'll write a book. And then you'll be back in marketing. <laughs> I'm, the, yeah, God. I'm going to hire a shadow writer because I hate writing. All right. Well, David, this was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Last question. Did you become a, a Animal Crossing addict? Oh, yeah. I have been for a month. It's been detrimental. Um, but, but fun. My relationship with my son is now testy because I want control <laughs> and, and he's four and wants to put things wherever he wants to and pick things up. And I'm like, that's not, I spent a long time making that. Those are my even, bells on that tree. <laughs> I don't even own a switch, but I started shopping for one during the virtual event. And I'm like, this is yeah. <laughs> why am I yeah. doing this? Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining too, me. Um, and hopefully we get to chat again soon.